It's encouraging to remember that we're going away we've never been For several reasons. One, I have no idea where we're going. Another is that the way I've gone before got me here and I'm not satisfied. chapter of Romans Sixteenth verse, therefore, it is of faith that it might be by grace. To the end, the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to that which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of Saul. Interesting for Paul a Jew to write it that way because when he was referring to not only which is of the law, he was referring to his natural heritage but he was also testifying when he said not only but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham you think, okay, well, Abraham was his progenitor. Abraham was what was resourced in a nation that became the Jews. But Paul is saying that Abraham stands as two things to us. He stands as that which is a natural seed, but the promise, although it included him, 
was not made to his natural seed, it was made to those who are of faith. So he not only stands as the progenitor of the Jewish nation, but he also stands as evidence of a Syrian who wasn't a Jew, who became party to what God's intention was for Adam because of the work of God, the promise of God, and the faithfulness of God to him as a natural man. This is really encouraging to me because I wasn't born a Jew. <laughs> to follow the path of the story which is familiar to all of us if not somewhat uh, pedantic in its repetition but to see the progressiveness and the cumulativeness of what God did in establishing Abraham in a covenant with him that Abraham, when he heard it, had no idea what God had just finished saying. You know, he was speaking words out of spirit. Abraham was translating them to the best of his understanding of the words that were used. And he came to a totally inappropriate conclusion. And yet God was able to reconcile that to the point where Abraham became the friend of God. And Abraham was able to sign a covenant that God had already committed himself to Abraham, although Abraham didn't understand that, the covenant that God made with Abraham and as a result with us as well, was completely provisioned. There was nothing that that covenant wouldn't cover. And by covering, I don't just mean hide, but I mean be a provision for any thing that would take place. Because, as has been mentioned several times in the last week, it wasn't just a promise, but there was also a swearing. And the promise sounds like this, I am your shield and I am your exceedingly great reward. That's the promise. But where was the swearing? Well, he swore by himself. So nobody heard him. No, it's not because he used bad language and he didn't want people to know. I know. The, the, the swearing is pronounced in our experiencing of the application of grace to us. The promise is what draws us. <coughs> Draw me, I would run after thee. Okay, so I'm your provision, I'm your enablement, I'm your protection, I'm your strong tower, I'm your... That's the promise. 
The swearing is taking place a day at a time as he proves himself faithful. And here's what, if it was something that was said, and there's no record of what he swore, but if it was to be identified in some way, if it were for you to compile the stories <coughs> and the promises and the understanding of the spirit that we come to in our own experience with God, we would hear God say, I will do this. That was the swearing. You know, I'm the promise, and here's the promise. But the promise is backed up by the power of God's commitment that is the outworking of a covenant that he pushed across the table to Abraham and he said, this is what I am to you. And then he waited for 25 years as Abraham, through the Spirit, began to sign it in response to the working of grace through faith. There was a progressive thing, right? Do we know what the signing of the covenant represents? Do we know how Abraham signed the covenant? Literally, the literal story of the accounting of Abraham's life, where the signing took place, was in circumcision. Right? He signed the covenant by circumcision. And it says, and because of that, he became the father of many nations. He didn't birth Isaac until after circumcision. And that was the seed in whom was the promise that your offspring should be as the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea but it didn't happen without circumcision. And we know that God has extended a covenant to us. And it's backed by the same promise and the same swearing. But this is not something that we're receiving in a figure. This is not taking... Isaac up the mountain and receiving him in a figure back from the dead. This is actually becoming the reality, not the figure of what it is that God purposed. We're engaged with this in a fulfillment of the promises that our forefathers saw and desired to partake of and did to some basis, some limited basis, some more than others. It was by measure. You know, when it says these all died in faith, it didn't mean they all finished their course. And we, we have, and I've mentioned before, and I'm going to go back there again, we have a testimony in the letter of the word of two men in all of biblical history that didn't die. That's it. And I wanted to talk to Enoch for a long time. Because he was the first one that didn't die. 
and he didn't die before the flood. He escaped the waters in a better ark. I'm going to apologize. I probably shouldn't, but I'm going to do it for being a little silly here. But when I sat down finally with Enoch, and I expressed to him how long I had wanted to talk with him, because I knew there were things that he had experienced based on the testimony of sidestepping death, that I wanted to be able to communicate, you know, and I, I mean, there's maybe someone right here in the room that could talk at that same level, but I don't know who you are. He's got the pedigree. So he said, well, that's great. He said, you know, what do you want to talk about? And I said, well, I really just have one subject that I want to talk to you about. You may have things that spring out of that, and I'm all ears. So I'm just going to say this, and then I'm going to be quiet, because I want to hear you. I said, I want to talk about righteousness. And he said, I, I have no idea what you're, what you're talking about. <laughs> Is that's not possible. There's no, no possible way, apart from righteousness, that you can have sidestep death. And he said, well, that may be, but I just don't know the word righteousness. Maybe if you define that for me, we'd you know, make progress in this conversation. And I said, well, it's the subjection of your soul in an appropriate manner to God by a day, on a daily basis that allows the progression of the unfolding of it. He said, oh, sit down. We're going to talk for a while. Yeah, I know what that is. I just didn't have that word righteousness. And all this transpired because, you know, the, this book didn't exist in its inception. It didn't even begin to exist until 3,500 years ago. So based on reasonable math, at least 1,500 years before the book existed, Enoch walked with God, fulfilled what is written in the book afterwards, and came to the completion of God's purpose for man. Stunning, huh? Yeah. I mean, it stuns me. I know I've talked about it before, and I'll probably talk about it again, and I'm not going to apologize the second time. I'll just refer to the first one. But this thing is a progressive, cumulative thing that God is doing, and it has a definite beginning, and it has a definite end. And it's called Christ. Christ is not a destination, therefore it's not eternal. If Christ is eternal, how would it die? How could it be 
brought out of its limitation as Christ and brought into an omniness that is God. Jesus said concerning himself, the things concerning me have an abrupt end. And that abrupt end is not death, it's inheritance. The abrupt end of Christ is not a cessation of life, it's the assimilation of life to something that far exceeds the limitation out of which it resourced and harvested faithfulness in spite of its inadequacy, in spite of its dependency, in spite of its weakness. This may come as an affront to some, and I and I don't know if I'm sorry if it does. God's going to shake the heavens too, not just the earth. But it's a necessary thing for us because it brings the hope of escaping a limitation that is otherwise not able to be escaped. God subjected man to vanity. That's how man was made. That should go into Genesis 1.5. When it said, let us make man, it should say, let us make man subject to vanity. Because that's when it happened. There was no need for salvation if man wasn't subject to vanity. And we've been given away. We've been given the truth. We've been given a life by new birth that is the means by which vanity is escaped. To escape the corruption that is in the world through my own self-interest. Because the life of son grows and comes to the, to the fruitedness within itself of living its life for the benefit of another. First God, to live my life for the benefit of God. This, this much Peter got clear on. He said that we should no longer live the rest of our lives unto the will of our own interests, but unto the will of God. Henceforth, from this day forward, assign ourselves the responsibility of living our life unto the will of God. I don't know what that is. If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally. How much do you want? Sometimes I don't want everything he's willing to give me. Sometimes I've had to say, I think today's responsibility is to be serious in my petition that you change what I desire. You know, God works in you both to will 
his good pleasure. Sometimes that's not the easy thing. But it's in the pathway of the covenant that he's extended. I don't know what friend means to everybody. That word is, I guess, an open-ended application. It could go from an acquaintance. It could go from, you know, to, to whatever extension we might consider. But to me, a friend is characterized by someone that when you disagree, you don't agree to disagree. You agree to continue the conversation until you understand one another clearly. Because the relationship that you have with the person, the person is worth more than the consideration that you're looking at, right? So sometimes one of the greatest tests to see what measure of friend you're willing to be is you want to be right. And it's a progressive cumulative thing too. And my friendship with God has been that characteristic. You know, there's, there's like, I can remember the morning I woke up and it, it followed in a series of mornings where I woke up and just the sweetness of his presence was such that I didn't even want to open my eyes, never mind get out of bed. And that morning, it wasn't. It was like, Lord, what's going on? Where are and he said, do you have to understand to trust me? So I guess I did, because that was the root of my question, where are you? Because And he said, yeah, it's got to get beyond that. Because if you have to understand me in order to trust me, then you're going to have to funnel omniscience through your tiny little pea brain. And it's going to limit the accommodation that you have for omniscience. If you don't have to understand, it opens up a wider point of access. that's based on creating something that doesn't already exist. It, it, I guess I haven't read the 17th verse yet, but it does bring it to mind when it says, before him whom Abraham believed, even God, who does this? He quickens the dead and calls those things which be not as if they were. Doesn't say as if they already are. We're being joined to something that already is. We're not, we're not, we've been joined to Christ. If you're born again, if any man be in Christ, that man is a new creature, and the old creature and the new creature, there's only two. There's not 16 creatures. There's two men. 
Adam, Christ. If you're born again, you're in Christ. You're a new creature. So you've been brought out of Adam. You've been deposited in Christ. And the purpose of that is so that you can have an ongoingness with God who quickened the dead and calls things that aren't yet as though they already have been. He's joining you and I to his intent that he had before he made the world. He's joining us to the purpose for which he subjected us unwilling to vanity. I, I don't know how you reconcile that verse. I used to reconcile that verse that I was unwilling to be subject to vanity and he did it to me. And, and that's undeniably true. But that's not the unwillingness that that verse refers to. It's talking about God was unwilling and yet subjected us to vanity. And, and that's confusing for me. Why would God, who can do whatever he wants to do, however he wants to do it, whenever he wants to do it, do something that he's not willing to do? Well, the unwillingness wasn't that he didn't want to do it. Obviously, he did it. It was that what he did wasn't because he wanted us to suffer vanity. It's because in subjecting us to vanity, there was a way for it to have an impact on us so that we would present ourselves to him for the application of a covenant and an authority through faith that would bring a life forward that was deserving to inherit him. Because you don't grow up into God. You grow up to the full stature of a son so that you can then inherit God. Christ is by measure, right? The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It's more than an implication there that there's a measure that isn't full, that the, even the fact of the word measure being included in it indicates potential for growth and increase. But God is. He can't change. He doesn't need to grow. But we get into talking about something that is, uh, is of God that is omni. Right. Certainly if there's 142 people anywhere on the planet that have heard this, y'all have heard it. This is not difficult. It's impossible. But omni doesn't regard measures of possibility or impossibility. It doesn't have gradings of difficulty. This is easy, this is hard. Omni, omnipotence, measure doesn't mean anything to that. And then we hear 
that in the sense of an outworking of this covenant that God has extended to you and I, that it's his good pleasure to give us the kingdom. It's more than an implication. What that means is, what it describes concerning Jesus, that when he sat down, he sat down in his Father's throne. He had been seated at his right hand. Sit thou at my right hand until I. This is a progressive developmental thing, but seated in the throne is talking about inheritance, not a developmental process. It's the result of the process being completed. This is beyond description. It's beyond definition. It's being challenged to talk about blow your winds, shake my timbers from stem to root, from branch to ground, whatever. This is God establishing and rooting us deep enough in the soil of redemption that it bears complete fruitfulness to his purpose. And you know, this is something that most people won't believe when they hear it. It is, it's easier to set it aside than it is to face our unbelief. If the dynamic of what has been working in us because of the long-suffering and the mercifulness and the patience of our Father to bring us through incremental development and encounters so that we come to a place of maturity where we can look at something and not faint. That's not easy to do. You know, faint the old uh, movies, you know, where the hero is tied to the track and the heroine standing there. That's one picture of it, but the other thing is just to look away and not even really have to pretend you didn't see it. Say, no, this is, this is outrageous. This is beyond. And you know, that's, that's actually the status that most are going to have. Because most can't believe what they don't see. Jesus turned to his disciples and he said, you're blessed because you believe what you've seen. But there's this company of people that my father has seen, and he's already framed that company. That when it accumulates to a full extension of that company and 
everybody that has been foreseen is not participating in that status, there's going to be something seen that has never been seen before. And those that participate in that are going to experience a greater encounter with the blessing of God than those who have to see in order to believe. And it, 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 those things have been looked at and characterized as being a better resurrection or a greater measure of glory or more gems in your crown or closer proximity to Jesus' house on Glory Hill. Or but if you really see the heart of a son coming to maturity, they're not doing what they're doing for themselves only. There's a turning that takes place and there's something that's happening in the soul and instead of gimme, 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 it's Oh God, don't hold this to their account. They get no idea where they are or what they're doing. And it, and it wasn't just that Stephen was being stoned or Jesus was being crucified. It was that they were looking at people that have a covenant extended to them by God and they're completely unaware of the provision or the power of that covenant. And it's just as much theirs as it is anybody else's. Jesus sat up over the city and he wept. He stood in front of Lazarus' tomb and he wept. And it wasn't the tears that were shed. He was on the Via Dolorosa and he said, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. I'm partaking of the power of God for God's purpose. This is the fulfillment of the purpose for which I've come. They expected him to be the fulfillment of something that if they had read closely the story of God's interaction with Solomon, would have realized that God was giving Solomon something he was never going to give to another man after that, including Jesus. A place of prominence, power, value, riches, It could have tempered their whole idea of Messiah. They, they just thought Messiah is going to be greater than Solomon. And Jesus said, I am, but not the way you think. I want to talk a little bit about this progressive cumulative thing. And I want to use the metaphor of forgiveness to do so. Because it's clear the dimension of this, but it's also the, uh, it's also a, a tremendous opportunity for clarity in our relationships with one another. And I, and I hope that if there's any future disruptions interpersonally in relationships here that ever developed, this will be drug out of the archives and practiced. I'm sure there aren't any now. Yeah.
So one of the anchor experiences in my encounter of the covenant that God has extended to me is forgiveness. And it was held before me as, a, you know, a target. You know, if you receive Jesus as your Savior, you'll be forgiven of your sins. And you won't go to hell and fry forever. Sounds good so far. But then it, it, it began to dawn on me, not any time really quickly. Because, you know, you really, you really have to get facilitated and capable and experienced and really good at being forgiven. You can't just be a testimony 40 years ago, I was born again, Jesus forgive me of my sin. It's just that's, you know, we're exercised. One of the things that's in the construct of Hebrews 5 to 6 that's a foundation for stepping forward on a firm footing in order to go on to perfection, which doesn't have definition, is to come out of those things that have definition, having been exercised in them. And the lack of exercise is termed there in Hebrews 5 as being not skillful in the word of righteousness. That's one of the main reasons that I wanted to talk to Enoch about righteousness was because I realized I got to get skillful in this. I have to be adept. Righteousness is not just being forgiven. It's a necessary ingredient. But getting good at being forgiven has to extend to not being condemned. I don't know if anybody battles condemnation here. But in a sense, what the gap between being condemned and not being condemned is made up of is appropriating forgiveness in a very practical way today in my life. Somebody said recently, in this last week since I've been here, that imputed is something that is accrued to your account. It's put on deposit for you. It's not something that you've accumulated or you earn or you deserve. It's something that's there for you to draw down on. And, and there's no reason for imputed righteousness if there's no unrighteousness. You know, blessed is the man that doesn't sin because God doesn't have to impute righteousness to him. doesn't say that. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. 
That's getting good at being forgiven. This extends beyond performance, good or bad. Sometimes the good, or, or the good performance is more difficult to overcome by faith than the evil one is. And then I began to suspect that I was going to have to actually forgive. And that wasn't a good day. That was a hard day. I'm just being honest. Because I didn't forgive things that were imaginary. I had to forgive real stuff. Well, they don't deserve to be forgiven. If I forgive them, they just go scot-free? Maybe, but that's not your concern. If you don't forgive, you're the one that's held hostage, not them. You're not holding somebody else hostage by your unforgiveness. <laughs> they could receive a glorified body while you hold them accountable for sin. It had nothing to do with your accounting. It has to do with righteousness. And you're responding to God who's got a whole different accounting system than mine. So forgiveness really comes so that I can begin to learn to forgive. And I, I don't know how good I ever really got at forgiving. I know I got better at it. I'm not going to claim to have attained. I'm following on to lay hold. But it, it, it came to me at a certain point of, why do you hold your brother in judgment so that you're offended? Because you wouldn't have to work so hard to forgive if you weren't so easily offended. Uh, well, I don't know if that's a shortcut or not, but... So I, I, out of the root of being forgiven, there was a requirement of forgiving and then a requirement of not being offended. And one of the anchors of that was that I realized that what I wanted to receive wasn't from man. Good or bad. It makes it a lot harder to get offended if you're not expecting something from somebody. You know, but you can't set them aside in order, you know, it's not, I don't care what they think. Yeah, you do. I'm not going to be moved by another man's judgment. Now you're, you're making some progress in righteousness, right? You're becoming more skillful in the word of righteousness. You're kind of getting into that territory from which Paul said, it is not a big deal to me to be judged by you. God's the one going through my soul. 
I, I've given up judging myself because when I judge myself, I begged him three times to remove this affliction. And he said, I'm leaving it. It's co-joined to the fact that I've given you an abundance of revelation. If I didn't leave it, you would float away into some ethereal non-event, thinking more of yourself than you ought to. So when you start getting inflated, you're going to bump into the thorn. So I, you know, he said, I, I learned through that to not judge myself. I can't determine what it is that God needs to do. This is his salvation being applied to my soul through my faith and trust in his spirit to work all things according to his counsel. You see the testimony of righteousness beginning to stand up and get some firmness in its voice and not say, well, I think, and maybe else it could be, and I don't want to say... To say, no, this is the way. And then, of course, standing on the working of not being offended is the beginning of a capacity to give yourself for others. Which is the real reason that you've been forgiven. <laughs> Forgiven to be given for. You know, you can do a little word game thing with it if you want to. So this, this progressiveness, this thing of learning Christ by measure, through faith, persistence, present yourself. You know, I, I think I said last Friday night that repentance is the means of learning to dwell. It's the fuel out of which dwelling is sourced. In James, the Spirit of God bringing testimony through a very pragmatic, practical man. Said, you can talk to me about faith. But I'll show you my faith by my works. Because faith without works is dead. Uh, the church is being unskillful in the word of righteousness by and large completely misinterpreted and misappropriated and misapplied and every other miss you can think missed the mark on this it's not talking about the doing of things it's talking about allowing the working to take place in you practically so there's the beginning of the conversion of the soul and the disposition toward God that changes. 
And the evidence that he pulled to, he didn't talk about Abraham leaving Ur the Chaldees. He talked about Abraham. He didn't talk about Abraham getting to some dust, rocks, sand, somewhere out of what is probably now metropolitan Jerusalem and looking at it and said I didn't come here to inherit that <laughs> I, I may have come to my geographical destination but I certainly haven't finished my quest you know it, Assyrian have better sense than most people on this planet have now that are drenching that sand with blood, competing for something that was not God's point. Uh, you know, let me finish that thought. So will it end up being true that God has given his people that for an inheritance? He said he's going to give the worlds to them. It will include that. But it's not going to be somebody that can trace their lineage back to Abraham and say it's ours by inheritance. And y'all need to get off. Will it literally become the inheritance of God's people? Yes, but God's people aren't God's people yet. And the inheritance isn't by some legislation of some political body in this world. That didn't work yet. So some Syrian knocking the dust off his sandals had more sense and people that consider themselves scholars and rabbis and spiritual people. And James didn't pull that out of his bag of examples to show the working of faith. And you know, what he did pull out to give evidence to faith that isn't dead faith, that actually works, was not something that the world saw. Right? When did God say, now I know? On a mountain. Who was there? Abraham and his son. It wasn't a testimony of works before man, so man could see faith working. It was the testimony in the soul of man who had been converted to believe that God was able to keep his word against natural law. That his soul had been converted from what was known and seen to what was unknown and not seen. You know, when he did that, there had never been, at least from a scriptural context, any record of a, anything being raised from the dead. The first story of anything being raised from the dead was Elijah and the widow's son. 
Jesus hadn't come, died, raised, ascended. It was like a blank slate. And somehow the working of his entrusting God for the application of God's purpose to his soul. Before Moses, he accounted God to have an extension toward him that was rooted in what was omni and not limited to what was nature. That's why I wanted to talk to Enoch. That's why I want to talk to my father. I was questioned by somebody one time. They said, well, you seem like a semi-erudite person. You got a vocabulary, you seem to be intelligent. What do you read? And I, and I was glad the, the, the question didn't come with more specifics, you know, like, how much time do you read the Bible every day? Because that would have been embarrassing. I said, well, as a child, I read everything I get my hands on. My parents had an extensive library. That I said, but then there was a window of time when I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit that I would wake up in the morning and the book would be on the floor. My light would still be on in the room because I would read until I fell asleep. I'd go to work and read for 10 minutes in the morning and 10 minutes afternoon on break and I'd eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich for lunch while I was working so I had a half hour to read when I had lunchtime. I read just very aggressively the scriptures. But I said, anymore, I just read him. And so that morning I referred to about 25 minutes ago, my repentance toward the Lord was, Lord, I don't need to know. but I need you. I don't need to feel. I need to learn to trust in spite of feelings, in spite of knowing, in spite of myself, in spite of my inadequacy, in spite of my failings, in spite of my shortcomings, maybe in spite of some of my successes. Finish is what's left. Full stature is the goal. Is God birthing babies? Is God getting people baptized in the Holy Ghost and encouraging them to step out in faith and speak in tongues and receive a word of knowledge that transcends the limitation of what they would otherwise know by any other means than the Spirit's quickening it to them? Yes, He is. All of those things are still in play. But there's something that he's thrown a net out. And he's brought in a great 
harvest of fish and he's separating the fish. And the ones that he's focusing on right now are those that are positioned to finish. Well, how do I know if I'm one? You don't. You don't know. You feel a witness to the things of God? Do you feel it wrong to follow on? Do you, are you challenged by the Spirit of God? You find out if you wake up at 5 in the morning and your alarm is set for 6.15, you, know, uh, you go, oh, I think I got an hour and 15 minutes that I can pray. And it, it, is there a, a sense of a positive purpose of an encounter to begin to sow ourselves? I'm not saying the amount of time praying equals a net result. It's, it's not earned in that sense. But the disposition for hospitality to the things of God and a sense of my own need are beginning to fuel a different encounter with this world. 